When I started writing The Gilded Ones, holy crap, like my mind is colonized. My mind is extremely colonized where I cannot see us and I cannot see what our civilizations look like. Hi, it's Chica from Afrenomenon. Welcome to Behind the Cover, a conversation with Black authors about the incredible worlds they create and their amazing journeys to get into your bookshelves. Stay tuned. My name is Namina Forna. I am the author um, of the young adult novel, The Gilded Ones, uh, which comes out February 9th, 2021. It was unfortunately pushed from this May because of the pandemic, but it is a young adult feminist fantasy. And yeah, it's going to be coming up. Oh, it's so exciting. I got a chance to read the book, uh, NetGalley, and I was like, oh my gosh, I need to get this author. I need to get her on our platform. This book spoke to me in so many ways. I do have um, a few questions that I want to get us started with. I learned that you migrated to the U.S. when you were nine years old from Sierra Leone. And this was during like the Civil War period. And, you know, you originally your family expected you to go pursue a career more in law and international diplomacy. But then but you went to Spelman and um, and also pursued an MFA in film and TV production. So I wanted to understand a little bit more about how your experience in these fields might have influenced your decision to go into more the writing space. Yeah, so I went to Spelman, mm-hmm. which I loved. I loved, loved, loved Spelman. And while I was there, that's when I actually had the idea for the Gilded Ones because I kept having these dreams of like a girl in golden armor and she's on a battlefield and she's about to jump up and do things. And then it cuts out and I didn't know where it went. And so during this time, doing my English degree and then I was taking like a lot of women's studies courses and all these things. And the expectation for, because, you know, African families, they're like lawyer, doctor, engineer. Engineer, that's it. (laughs) Yeah. So um, it was like, we already had a doctor. So it was like, yeah, so if I were going to get the lawyer. (laughs) But like, I always, like, I always had like all these worlds like in my head. And I was like, okay, I might be crazy or, and this is stretch, I might be a writer. You know, so when the time came, I applied to law school mm-hmm. and I applied to film school. And then I sort of like did a dart to film school. And my <laughs> family was like, what the? <laughs> like, this seemed like out of left field. And honestly, I hadn't even realized you could go to school for film. I didn't realize you could go to school for writing because, you know, for us, it's lawyer, doctor. doctor that's it. So they don't tell you that there's other things that you can do outside of those three things. So when I found out about film school, because one of my cousins had gone, I was like, hmm, this, I want to be an author, but I know that it's really hard to get in because I've been querying in college. Like I'd, I'd finished like my first novel in college and Whoa. I was queer. And of course, back in those days, there was no avenue <laughs> at all. So I was just like, okay, while I'm waiting for this thing, let me go to film school. Maybe I'll find some tangential thing there. And like how I convinced my parents to be cool with it was like, it's a four year, like it's a three year program. It's like more of a generalized so I can find my way. Like, <laughs> yeah, This is stupid, but you can go. And then after you go to law school and then you'll be an entertainment lawyer. And so that's how I sort of like played them and I went. That was nice. And of course, I quickly realized that I was not a production person. I was a writer. Mm-hmm. But in my family, it's like you start something, you finish. So I finished my degree and then I left and 
went into the post-grad wilderness. Basically, at this time, I, for the longest time, was the biggest failure to launch. I was like the family disappointment. They were like, Namina, this one was valedictorian, but then she went to film school. Like, it was like, this one was, and then she, you know, like, I was like the biggest disappointment because I just, I could not get my life together. Meanwhile, I just kept writing. Finally, in 2017, I meet my agent, Alice. And from there, that's when the next year I write the Gilded Ones and we sell it. And then I get film agents, film and TV agents. And so like now... I'm in development for an unrelated TV show, among other projects. So. Oh, wow. That's, that's incredible. The, but the, the one thing I want to say to all the people is understand that in all of this was disappointments, 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 disappointments. It was a lot of disappointment. Wow. Yeah. But it's an incredible story, though. What was it and what was it about the time of when the book came out that, you know, made it blossom so much? So I got the idea for The Gilded Ones when I was 1920, but I actually wrote the novel when I was 25. So The Gilded Ones is set in a world where every 16 girl has to go through what's known as the ritual of purity. And pure means red blood and impure means gold blood. And if you're impure, you're considered a demon. And the idea is if you see someone who's impure, you kill them and you, you know, get rid of them. But the problem is impure girls each like has only one way they can die. So like they're very hard to kill. My main character, Deka, discovers that she's impure in like the worst way. And she's sentenced to be executed, but then gets a reprieve um, when a messenger comes and tells her that, hey, that there's these monsters, they're ravaging our country. If you fight um, for the emperor for 25 years, then you'll be free, you'll be made pure again. And you can like sort of go off into the, you know, into the distance. And so, of course, she says yes. But as she goes through this journey, she starts to learn a lot about the world, about girls like her and about the way that women have been conditioned in this world that she lives in. And so that's the Gilded Ones. And so I wrote the novel. But at that time, it was like 2012, I believe, like the industry was way different than it is now. It was accepted that you don't have black people on the cover because black people do not sell books remember they used to have the urban section and that's where yes. they put like the black books in the back and to me it was always like oh my gosh that's like the worst place to do that so there was that segregation in the library and bookstores but in trying to even get an agent i couldn't get an agent and it wasn't because um i wasn't talented it wasn't because my writing wasn't good because i did get a lot of let me see the full thing. But then it would always be, oh, but does she have to be, you know? Or I'm afraid that this won't connect with readers. And also I was doing both the novel thing and the film and TV thing. So after you graduate USC, if your concentration is writing, they have what's called first pitch where all these agents and managers come and you talk to them, right? So I have all these meetings with all these big management companies and agencies or whatever. And I literally had, I will never forget this. One agent was just like, listen, you're not going to get anywhere because nobody wants your stuff. It's not that you're not, you know, like your stuff is, is good, but it's just, it's not going to sell. Nobody wants it, you know? And I got a manager right after film school, but it was just, 
never the the timing honestly back then it was very difficult for a person of color to get their foot through the door i don't know if you recall but there'd be books out by people of color and then a white character on the top so it was very distressing because i kept trying to knock against this wall that just was not going to open so what changed i think it was a couple of things first i think there were big pieces of art that primed people towards thinking that oh there are things that will sell so there was get out there was books like Angie Thomas came Danielle Clayton came Ella McKinney came so those people were paving the way and i am so grateful for all those people but like i think that the biggest thing was trump came and people sat back and were like oh my gosh we are really racist we maybe need to fix this and i think also there is also the intersection of social media because black voices were rising at such a height that finally our voices were being heard cuz we dominate social media let's be real and then what i think really took it was when black panther came people were like oh my gosh black things make lots of money at the time i was doing this job writing clickbait and my job was to see what was trending and so maybe um 3 4 months out I'm seeing black panther I'm like oh my gosh this is going to be huge so I call up my agent I'm like hey Alice I have this idea it needs a page 1 rewrite because when I wrote it in 2012 feminism wasn't as acceptable and all these things weren't as acceptable so I sort of diluted it and I was like no let me do a play page 1 rewrite so I did a page 1 rewrite and like literally within like days of going out it like sells it it gets preempted yeah wow. that's amazing yeah. that's wow i love stories like these because it just goes to show the problem is not that there aren't writers or there aren't these stories it's just the industry like this gatekeeping certain people blocking or thinking that certain books won't sell because maybe it's a black person on the cover or like the topic or whatever but stories like this yeah. definitely show that that's not like these stories exist and it's the industry that is just waking up to it. That's why anytime somebody says like it's a pipeline issue, I do a side eye because yeah, it's a pipeline issue because there are talented um black people and brown people and like just every type of person in every field it's just that the gatekeepers aren't letting them in and the sad thing is even the people who are supposed to be your allies are the ones who like do the worst work of tearing you down so that you can't ever get to your fullest potential because they're gatekeeping you in for the bigger gatekeepers and that's messed up yeah no that is another question I, i have is you know you came up with the gilded ones back when you were at spelman college and you know because you said you were tired of seeing the societal objectification of women and i wanted to know how much of your experience at spelman inspired the setting and characters or focus on your fierce female leads so i think the kernel from the gilded ones came from growing up in sierra leone and growing up in atlanta georgia and what i mean by that is that in sierra leone like there's sierra leone is extremely patriarchal like we have a high amount of gender violence and when i was growing up you know it's during the war and we had such atrocities especially towards women and to people that i knew that you could not escape the fact that when you are a wo- woman these horrible things happen 
but it was like the same sort of like I feel like America is politer sexism, but right now it's not even polite sexism because we're nominating a Supreme Court judge that may take away the right to abortion. When I talk about the polite ways, and this actually really influenced the gilded ones, it's you know the purity culture that's here in America, especially in like Christian communities. So this is directly commenting not only on that but on just the fact that as women. Our bodies are inherently politicized and commodified, meaning that everybody gets to write laws about what we should do with our bodies, and then everybody sees our bodies as a monetary value, which is why in my book the girls bleed gold. But Spellman really influenced the Gilded Ones. First of all, like the setting, the Watimera is—it's evil Spellman, <laughs> basically. It's evil Spellman. So there's things like. Any Spellman woman or Spellmanite who is like reading this book will be like, "Oh, I see what this is. I see the wake up. I see Olive Branch." There's all these things that I sort of put in there that's like not not to Spellman. So in that way, the book is sort of a love letter to the school because for me, like Spellman was the place where you can un- unapologetically be yourself and be what you want to be, and that for me. Was a message that I needed to hear, and that's the message that I, in this book, hope to give to anybody who reads it: be yourself unapologetically, fiercely, and don't really listen to the messages that people tell you because oftentimes they have an agenda that doesn't work out in your favor, especially if you are black, brown, queer, or gender diverse, or a woman. Good so far. Awesome. Don't forget to hit that follow and subscribe to our newsletter. Remember, you can always find us on all social media platforms, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. Did you do it? Awesome. Now let's jump right in. Something you say about your book is like you said, you want your book to be a fighting book. And you said you want the next year of girls and women to read your book and be like, F this. And I wanna know what emotions do you want people to associate with your stories The Gilded Ones is a book that I wrote because I was angry. And this is the book of my rage. It is, it is in terms of books, because I write different things. I write, I write mainly TV shows, but also movies. But in books, I actually tend to write middle grade and they're very happy. (laughs) But the Gilded Ones, I think most people can relate. It's being so angry about, about the way that ways that I have been bamboozled all through my life, you know, because what I do with this book is I very sort of, I sort of very carefully lead you through when you grow up in a patriarchal society, it's very hard to fight to um, swim against the water that you grow up in. Right. That's why in the beginning, Deka is very docile. I think in a lot of books it's like, Oh, you, you all of a sudden you're immediately badass and you're fighting against the system. And no, 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 no. If you grew up in a place like that, you, you, what is you conform? You conform and you conform hard. And I wanted to slowly unfurl that process of you grew up in this place where people, there's such strict boundaries on what you can and can't do based on your gender, whether you're a woman and in book two, whether you're a man or are more gender diverse. You always have all these constrictions, but what happens when you sort of start to question them and you start to see your world for what it really is? And then the first thing that comes is that anger. So for me, I wanted this to be a safe place for people to read 
wherever they are and to question what are the uh, messages that you're getting around you? Do they have an agenda? Is that an agenda that is against you? Is that an agenda that serves you? What is your place in this world? These are the questions that I really want people to ask themselves as they read this book in particular. So for this book, yes, like I want them to feel all the emotions, but particularly I do want that anger of understanding, wait a second, have I, like, if you've been bamboozled, how was I bamboozled? But for my other books, I want you to feel happy and whimsical, like <laughs> dance in a, in a haze of moonlight and glitter and everything is okay and it's magical and it's whimsical and it's beautiful. I promise you those books are coming. <laughs> this is my book. You credit your grandma for your love for telling stories. In an interview, you mentioned that grandma will tell you native myth and mythologies, and you love these stories so much that you believed everything. And we want to know what types of mythologies or stories did you grow up with your grandma? And do any of these stories show up in the Gilded Ones? So first I will say that I created the Gilded Ones, the world of Oterra, to exist on its own. So it has like tangential things but it's not based on any mythologies how i came up with the world was i was like here's a girl in golden armor let's spring from that mm -hmm. and then from there it spiraled out with the gold and all these things and yes i do things like i use words that are familiar for sierra leoneans like alaki which is what these girls are it's an in joke because in sierra leone like alaki like alaki means like worthless or stupid so they'll be like oh look this alaki poseyaso you know but i took that word and i turned it into something that has like so many more different connotations like i'm from the timney tribe in sierra leone so i use a lot of timney words so in that way the Gilded Ones is based in Sierra Leone, but the myths um, and legends that I grew up with, of course, I feel like Br'er ra ra bre Rabbit, Br'er spar Spider, and all of those things are sort of common around West Africa. But for us in Sierra Leone, we had, we had like Mami Wata, we had like Yellow Woman, we had a lot of myths. And my grandmother specifically used to tell me about Mami Wata. I grew up next to a marsh. So this is my house, this is the marsh, this is the beach, right? Mm -hmm. And so she'd tell me that the marsh was where Mami Wata came to sleep at night. And so it was funny because other people thought that because like at night we'd go and we'd stand on the veranda and we'd watch people go and put their offerings and stuff there. But the way that she spun Mami Wata for me was, and she was like, she is this creature, this mermaid creature that will come and take you if you're bad. And at the time, of course, I was watching Little Mermaid, so I was like, for real? <laughs> so you need to tell me there's something, there's a mermaid goddess that comes and she will take me into the water and I'll get to be a mermaid too if I'm bad. Oh, like, I was like <laughs> doing all kinds of like, you know, like what kids consider bad things and then being mad when I never got taken. <laughs> so they go down to the water and just be like, I did this. I did that. I did that. Like, why? Why didn't you take me? I did everything. So My yeah, that was what I grew up with. No, I don't. I totally understand that whole mommy water thing. We have that too. I had a doll like Ariel from Little Mermaid, and my grandma would cut her tail because <laughs> she's like, "This is the devil. This is mommy yeah, water." Like, <laughs> and I'm like, "Why are you doing this to my doll?" <laughs> like she literally would cut it off, and she's like, "No, we don't do this in this house." And then you know, speaking about your experience in Sierra Leone, I came across where you talked about growing up in a war-torn Sierra Leone. And mm -hmm. even though you didn't 
experienced any of the violence. You say that the experience of witnessing or knowing people who experienced that trauma was a trauma of itself. Bearing witness was a trauma of itself. And I wanted to know, do any of these themes sh or show up in the book or in maybe characters that you develop in your story? I mean... Definitely. Remember Balcalis? I think as a whole, when I grew up in Sierra Leone, you, you see things, you know things, you experience things growing up as I did that were very difficult. But other people had things that were much, much worse. <laughs> so it's, it's sort of like sometimes weighing traumas. One of the things that I've learned in my journey, and it used to be very hard for me to even talk about this is that everybody's pain matters and you can't compare one to another because I still have PTSD. I still have to go to therapy because of these experiences. And so with The Gilded Ones, this is a book about sexual violence against women. We cloak it in on the euphemisms because I think that is the that is why I love fantasy. It is because fantasy allows you to talk about things that are really difficult, to engage with those things in a way that's like a glass between you and what's happening. And so that for me is the gilded ones. I talk about those issues, but in a way, hopefully that there's all this other stuff happening. So I'm hoping to not re-traumatize people as they sort of engage with that. The, the most explicit way that I talk about it is with the character of Belle Callis, because you remember that scene where she talks about her scars, and I won't talk about it further. But there's two scenes for me. It's Belle Callis with the scars, and then the scene at the lake of how do you deal with trauma? How do you process trauma? A lot of times when people meet me, they're like, I, I didn't even know that you had stuff going on. And, and I'm always careful to say, yes, I do. Because number one, I think there's such a stigma in our communities about talking about mental health and talking about like these issues. And I always want to speak out about it, but as much as I can without re-traumatizing myself. But I hope that it is a way that people can engage with it and ask those serious questions. And so... I would say, I guess, yes. I think Belcalis is the most upfront way that I talk about trauma, especially violence against women. You do this so well in the book because when I started reading the book, it was a very, you know, it's very heavy even in the beginning. But the way you lead the readers through it, you don't focus on like the trauma. Like actually what I, what I really, really loved about Belcalis and Decca was I was so drawn to like their strength and I loved how their strength wasn't shown in the way of they didn't go through things. It was, they had this strength throughout everything they experienced. They still pulled through and they still were able, even though they were managing the trauma that they were continuously experiencing literally on a day to day. It was one of those parts that reminded me, oh, this story is actually dealing with a lot of heavy topics, but the way it was written, it didn't make that the central focus. It just was more focused on their strength. And so that's one thing I really appreciate about the story a lot. Yeah, because like this is a story um, of trauma and most characters in the book have gone through things and are dealing with things. And in fact, Deka has PTSD. And so you see it in the different things that she does. She continuously has flashbacks or that period where she's on that journey and she's always sleeping. All of these things are like little things of like, how do you process your trauma? 
And what is the result? What happens? These are the things. And yes, they are in a fantastical way, but it's still sort of real things that happen. You know, you credit Sierra Leone and the youth of, you know, the nation for inspiring the content in your story. And you already mentioned this earlier, but the word alaki, where you said it translates as useless. And you said it was an in-joke for all the Sierra Leones to like catch on to and see. And I love that, you know, you position your book as this is a book written with Africans in mind. And I wanted to know if there was a way you could share a little bit more about this what is the context for using like the word alaki? What is the story behind it? So basically like alaki like literally means useless. It, it has multiple meanings, right? But if you're talking to someone and this is a really stupid conversation or you'll just be like, man, like get out of here with like this alaki business. <laughs> but come on, I also with this alaki business, yeah. With, you know, like, so it's like that or it's like if you're angry and then you're like, this person is useless. <laughs> this alaki must amaya so like, wait, it, you know, so it's like, then it's like, so you can use it like with your friends, you're joking like, well, this is the alaki, like, you know, but if you're angry, then it becomes a different thing of this, this not alaki teen. I don't want to know, but it's that sort of thing. Oh, right. I see. Yeah. I see. I mean, like, that's the thing about Sierra Leoneans, like Sierra Leoneans stay joking. Sounds like they're a lot like Nigerians. We always say, what else can we do but make jokes and laugh? With everything going on, we have to laugh throughout pain. I mean, that's so true. That's one of the things that sort of kept this book from being truly grim, dark. One of the things I noticed is when people talk about the war in Sierra Leone, and specifically my family, I notice we always give it a humorous bent. It's a way of sort of laughing through our tears and, yeah. and, I think that's a very sort of Sierra Leonean thing and something that I think is just like a coping mechanism. Also, I think we're just great natural storytellers. There's that too. Like your main character, Deca, struggled to feel accepted. You, you talk about how you struggled with people's perception of Africa when you first uh -huh. attended, uh, I think it was middle school in Georgia. And you said growing up, your teacher called you a liar for saying you didn't live in a hut or you didn't wander around naked or you didn't have lions in your backyard. And you say that, you know, you think one of the most horrendous things that colonization did was rob us of our imagination. By extension, pride in ourselves, even though we have a glorious history and a beautiful culture, sometimes we can't see it because it's been overwritten by colonial powers. And so we have to overwrite them once they're at a time. Why did you think this to be really, really important? And why take the fantasy route to actually achieve this? So this is one thing that I will say. When I was in undergrad and I was deciding to be a writer and I decided to go to film school, I thought about this and I realized that whoever controls the narrative controls how you feel about yourself. That is so, so important. Culture is so, so important, right? I think for centuries, Europe and now America has exported its culture and overwritten whatever is there, right? Like literally right now we're in a fight to get things changed in schools. And I think that as a black person and as a person of color, you are often at the mercy of other people telling stories for you. And when they tell stories for you, they tell awful stories. Today I was reading Twitter and I saw that these white supremacists got convicted of causing riots and looting during the protest earlier this year. And of course, remember during the protest, black people were like, it's not us. 
And now come to find out that this was a concerted thing among white supremacists to loot and to riot and to all these things. But there was a specific story being told about Black people. And I think that it is so important for us to tell our stories. It is so important for us to not only tell our stories, but to also broadcast our stories into the world, because that's the only way you sort of fight what stories are being told about you. Like, I'll give you an example. When I started writing The Gilded Ones, I tried to think about what an epic vision of Africa could look like. And all I could think about was naked people in huts. I'm from Sierra Leone, born and raised. Like my dad, like was a, like, he loved history. He had all these books, you know, he used to talk about Mansa Musa and like all these things, which I didn't pay attention to back in the day. When I tried to write this book, I realized, holy crap, like my mind is colonized. My mind is extremely colonized where I cannot see us and I cannot see what our civilizations look like. But then, so of course then, like literally I took over a year, like reading all these books, like articles, trying to figure out what Africa, what West Africa specifically looked like back in the day. And imagine how angry I was when I found out about the great city of Benin, like the walls of Benin. I never heard about that. I never realized that once upon a time, there was this city that was more advanced than its European counterparts with walls four times the size of the Great Wall of China. Never knew that. Never knew that. Because all every time there's stories about us, it's, oh, we are primitive, we're savages, half-naked living in huts, whatever, swinging from vines. And so that's why, for me, it's important to write stories, but specifically to write fantasy, because fairy tales are some of the most important stories because everybody grows up with fairy tales and fairy tales inform, especially the epic ones inform how you see yourself. Like if you think about it, why have there been so many reiterations of King Arthur or Hercules or all of these things? These are foundational myths for people that allow people to feel like, oh my gosh, this is our culture. Look at Lord of the Rings, like the thrill that you get when you see that. And so that's why for me specifically, I write fantasy because I want to write those foundational myths. And I want to show to everybody because I write, you know, for black and brown people, but I write for the world. I write for anybody who picks up my books, right? I want you to be able to pick up my book and find yourself there and be like, oh my gosh, this is cool. And to engage in my world and engage in my culture for however long that you're there, but also to sort of confront what ideas that you might have about me or my culture. So that next time I enter a room, there's not all those preconceived notions about who I am or whatever. And nobody's telling me that I'm lying because there are huts, lots of nice huts where I come from, but I didn't grow up in that. And that is also a valid thing. So thank you so much for even doing that, like writing this story, because part of the reason why I started out phenomenal was because during COVID and everything, I wanted to read a book and I didn't want to read a book about trauma. I didn't want to read a book about struggle and I could not come up with a list of a book that wasn't those things. And especially being African myself, I want a book that spoke to me, but where I felt like I was center, I was focused. And that was so hard. I remember spending hours and hours on just Google and Medium. And I had certain criteria about 
the about what I was looking for. There's literally only the stories about pain and I don't want to re- read a book about pain and colonization and struggle. But when I got your book and first of all, the cover was stunning. Like I was just like, wow, that guy with the braids and just the gold. I was like, thank okay. Josu. He, is the, he is the artist for that. And also thank you to my editor because she was, she had the brain, that was her brainchild. So it was her entire they made it happen. The cover is yeah. beautiful. And those are things I was looking for. So thank you again for doing this with this story because it's so, so needed. Part of the reason why I was looking at the fantasy and sci-fi space was because I saw what Black Panther did for everyone. I remember thinking, why aren't stories like this written by our people and also tell our story, especially like not just in a uh, general sense of Africa, but like actually drawing from real cultures. And, and then when I started looking for it, I realized that there are a lot of people in this space looking for these stories too and that's where i was like okay we need to have a platform that can be dedicated to having these conversations talking about these stories but not just these books are black books for black people no these are black stories that are for everyone and for people across all cultures and all backgrounds to just relate to because they're incredible stories what are some of your goals and ambitions for your future work I want to create franchises. That is what I'm here for. I want to create massive worlds that people can lose themselves. I want to create franchises. That is what I'm here for. I want to create massive worlds that people can lose themselves into. I want to have mermaids and maybe a princess or two because I'm not really that into princesses. But I I want to have a feisty princess or two. Lots and lots of, of course, action, because that's my thing. If it's a young adult book, expect it to be violent, because I write very violent stuff in young adult, but in middle grade, whimsy, and expect whimsy and magic, and just expect that happy feeling, that warm. When I'm writing middle grade books, what I aim for is that warm, happy feeling that you get in your center here, or sometimes I want you to be happy, sad, because I have a series of books that I'm working on about a little girl who basically is the river man of the dead. And so that's a happy, sad book because in these books, she leads the dead to where they need to go, but they need to sort of unfurl what their last, what their last thing is before they go. And that's always that beautiful sort of happy sad feeling but of course i have mermaid books and that's whimsical and magical and all these things so expect a lot from me hopefully expect a nice tv show from me but we'll see let's go that's all exciting that's all exciting i like how there is a balance between it i was so excited to get into the uh, more work you produce because what i what i already read so far i loved completely i haven't stopped talking about it so I'm really excited for anything else you create. I am excited for it. Give us three words to describe your stories. With this story, I would say brutal, golden, inspirational. With my other stories, I would say whimsical, happy, magical. Thank you. You kind of hinted at this earlier about your experience in getting this book published, but there's no doubt a limited representation of Black people, especially darker skinned Black women in fantasy stories. What would a solution look like for these issues? I think just more people writing, you know, dark skinned people. I tend to write dark skinned people because I grew up in Sierra Leone. We're, we're all dark skinned. I am, well, I'm not that much of an anomaly because I'm half Fulani on my mom's side, but you know, 
we chocolate and I, and I very enjoy that, you know? So like, I always try to have lots of dark skin characters and I always try to have the main character as a dark skin person. And that's just my personal preference. And another thing is casting in film and TV. Like when I'm writing TV shows, I always write a dark skinned female lead. And that's just because, well, honestly, I'm sort of tired of the Netflix look. Let me see some really true, dark, beautiful chocolate. You know, like that's what I find. I don't know. That's what I find interesting and beautiful because that's my family. Those are my nieces. That's, that's, that's who they are. And that's what I like. And, you know, looking back at your publishing journey, you said it took you 10 years to get your story published. What advice would you have for young people who are inspiring to, you know, be successful in this field? I think the first thing is get a day job (laughs) because it's so hard throwing the rock against that wall that having a stable day job keeps you from number one, being poor as I was. Cause when I tell you I was the queen of poverty for years and years and years. So get a day job. Don't be poor like me. Do not, do not be couch surfing like I was because that is not a way to live. That's number one. But number two, get on Twitter because Twitter is where you find the writing community. If you do hashtags like I'm writing 5am writers club or whatever, and you do competitions like pitch wars and, or you do things like hashtag DV pit, you will find your writing community. And I think really a writer is only as good as their critique or partners and their beta readers. So find people who can help boost you and help take your writing to the next level. The other thing that I would say is understand that this is a long game. You need to have multiple projects, right? So when if you write one book and it doesn't work, put it aside and write the other. And because writing things that don't sell is never a waste. Because number one, it helps you get better. But number two, as you can see from me, you can always go back when the time is right, sell them. You know what I mean? That's the other thing that I would say is timing, timing, timing. What I mean by that is be very aware of what the industry is. Don't like just chalk your hands up in the air and be like, oh, I'm just going to write my this, that, and the other. Write your this, that, and the other. But you also should understand why it's not selling because if you're writing this and the market is looking for that, you have to understand. It's one of those pieces of advice where I'm splitting hairs. On one hand, you know, your original story could be the one that breaks the mold. But on the other hand, if you're writing stories that people were writing five, 10 years ago, understand why it's not selling. So there's a difference between being original and doing what has already been done. And also plan your books. One of the best things that ever happened was I started writing outlines before I ever wrote a page of the book. Write your outline, send it to your critique partners, talk it over, make sure you have a solid story and then write but of course not everybody writes this way so i think those are my pieces of advice i would say and that's namina fornai author of the gilded ones coming out february 9th and available for pre-order everywhere if you want to be in the loop for all good black reads stay subscribed and for the full transcript head over to afrinomenon.com and if you want to get featured for your upcoming book send us an email at Hello at afrinomenon.com. As always, thanks for tuning in. We hope to see you next time. Bye.